One day, I'm sure, probably pretty soon, there will be an ethnically Chinese Premier, maybe even ethnically Chinese Prime Minister, and I think that's incredibly important to embrace that vision of Australia as not just Asian in mouth, but Asian in appearance. Hello, I'm Tamsin Peach, and you're listening to the Conversation Speaking With podcast. Today we're looking at the rise of the 21st century's new global power, China. The Middle Kingdom is fast becoming the most dominant force in international diplomacy. With a booming economy, population of 1.3 billion, and enormous military strength, China has a huge footprint on the global stage and profound implications for Australia. I'm speaking with Kerry Brown, director of the Chinese Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, about Australia's way forward in the rapidly evolving Chinese century. With China, in 10 years' time, it's likely it will be very different. I mean, Australia, the variables are not that great. I mean, Australia will still probably be, you know, a sound democracy with a relatively free press and with decent diamond-shaped middle class sort of, you know, I mean, it'll, you know, be roughly what it is now in a way. But I think China's going to change a lot. So we probably need to think quite hard about what sort of future China we would think was a, a good one for us, and then think, well, how, how on earth are we going to influence that outcome? China's transformation into a strong modern economy began in 1979, when the then president, Deng Xiaoping, launched a program of trade liberalization. But the changes wrought by these reforms go beyond just politics. They alter the way China conducts itself on the world stage today. And Australia's ability to influence outcomes in its favour will largely depend on how it engages with China's complex and growing diplomatic machinery. I guess the idea in the uh, kind of Dungist reforms was you can't uh, reform China without external pressure or external capital or you can't try this autarkic sort of system. Uh, you have to kind of interlink with the world, but on your own terms. So there was a sort of stronger sense from 1979 of, you know, what was in China's interest, and that was to create a rich, strong country. And the way to do that was to get foreign technology, foreign capital, and, you know, basically have much more trade linkage with the world. And I suppose that trajectory has become more and more politicized. You know, it's not just about taking the money and the technology. It's actually then becoming stronger and becoming more prominent in the world community. And that process sort of goes on to, to today. We'll, we'll almost certainly continue into the future of a China which is powerful and rich and politically important, not just economically important. So diplomatic ties developed alongside those commercial and trading links? Yeah, I mean, in 1966, during the Cultural Revolution, China had, at that time, one ambassador abroad, Huang Hua, in Egypt. And then, uh, you know, since 1979, it's rebuilt its diplomatic kind of uh, links. It's managed to be, I mean, I think 22 countries still recognize the Republic of China on Taiwan, but the rest of the world recognizes China as the one government of China. And so it's got an enormous, you know, diplomatic apparatus now. But with offshore investment and international diplomacy come foreign ideas. And throughout the last century, the idea of democracy in China has surfaced again and again. 
The 2014 Hong Kong protests might be the most recent example, but the pro-democracy movement is no new idea to China's authoritarian and communist government. Democracy was talked about in, I mean, throughout Chinese sort of modern history, and in 1911 there was an election, you know, and uh, as many as sort of 200 million voted in that election, and the guy who won it, Song Jiarong, was assassinated on his way to Beijing to take up his position as president. So democracy has kind of come and gone, and, uh, you know, the May the 4th movement in 1919, you know, was Mr. Science, Mr. Democracy, that was what the students wanted. So you would say that democracy is this sort of very idealistic kind of thing in modern Chinese history, uh, and it's now more contaminated by how democracy has become complicated in the rest of the world. I don't think there is a naivety about what democracy gives, um, certainly within China. It's very ambiguous, you know, um, surveys saying that China, quite, you know, Chinese people, they kind of quite like sort of um, more administratively focused uh, governance. But then we could say we're never really asking the right questions, so it's a little bit difficult to really know what Chinese people do think of democracy. But I don't think you easily get this very idealistic view of what American or Western democracy gives. It's more that our lifestyles are liked. It's more that the rule of law is admired. But I don't think they're terribly impressed by our politicians. Democratic systems place great faith in transparency and accountability to prevent corruption, something which has long plagued China's political system. But China has a long history of concealment and mystique, and this tradition lends a different perspective on what makes a system weak or strong. I think the culture of power in China is that you are powerful if you conceal. It's a Machiavellian kind of you know, mentality, so to be open is to be weak. And I guess that's the paradox of Western power systems, that their openness, in a sense, makes them seem weaker than they are, but we think it makes them stronger. So political cultures and uh, the you know kind of sociology or anthropology of politics in uh, of, of power in China is conceal is good, and you know uh, there's a sort of theatre of concealment and the idea that only certain people in the system know and there's only very few people that have power. I mean that's very striking about the whole kind of uh, you know pattern of the dynastic past that you had an emperor who almost you know, kind of had a religious function within this system and was the intermediary between heaven and, and earth. And you could say, in a sense, the communists have kind of stolen that idea of the charisma of power, of the kind of, you know, the mystery and the mystique of power. And yet they want to dress it up in this sort of modernity, you know. So it's, it's it, I guess that's at the kind of heart of why power in China is so hybrid now. But on the one hand, you've got this mystique of, you know, the imperial kind of great cadre, who comes and interprets, it's like a philosopher king. And uh, on the other hand, you've got this extraordinary festival of chaotic modernity. So it's hard to kind of put these together. But I think on the whole, it's a system that privileges control and is quite narrow in how it privileges control. And at the moment, the control is through money. So who controls the budget, controls everything. Today, the Australian government has reached a crucial point in its trade relationship with China. And as our economy becomes more and more dependent on Chinese business, our long-standing security relationship with the United States is coming under increasing pressure. Caught in the middle of a tussle between these two powers, 
Australia's ability to manage this difficult diplomatic balancing act could well determine its future prosperity and security. I don't see why you should kind of accept, uh, for Australia to accept security on this side and economy on that side and not make a spectrum between them. I, I find that self-limiting. Economics is security, security is economics. You know, if you're not wealthy, you are less secure. Uh, if you are secure without, you know, the kind of means to pay for your security, then you're insecure. I mean, you know, if you kind of don't put them together. So you've, you've really got to kind of think of a sort of world now where, where Australia has to be a bit more complicated in where it sits in the world. And the whole job of diplomacy is to have your cake and eat it. You know, you, you, you want things from certain people and you can't get everything from one person. So you work out strategies of keeping everyone happy around you so you get what you want. So I think um, there's probably, you know, to me the interesting question in Australia is, I mean, do, does Australia have foreign policy? Um, and, and, you know, that's, there are plenty of people who can make very powerful arguments for saying why well, you shouldn't have foreign policy, but... Um, why try and influence things that you're not able to influence? You can influence your domestic policy, but why try and influence, you know, things in other countries? Just, you know, leave it and just sort of risk manage. But I think actually for me, dealing with China and Australia, obviously China has a policy towards Australia, and that is to embrace it, to bring it into its field of, you know, kind of uh, influence, to create obligations with Australia, to be kind and gentle to it and sort of make it kind of more and more integrated into the sort of Sinosphere. And I guess we have to think hard, well, is that in our interests? If it is in our interests, how do we engage with it? And if it isn't, then what do we do as an alternative? And that's policy thinking. So, you know, the rise of China is requiring us to kind of be a little bit more sophisticated. That's it. We will not be left alone. We no longer have the tyranny of distance. They are coming for us. Yeah. Even if we think that we, uh, you know, are uh, uh, going to be left, we're not going to be left alone. We, we haven't been left alone ever, really, but I mean, we're certainly not going to be left alone now. Not being left alone has been undoubtedly good for Australia's economy, and China's economic boom has fueled decades of research-led growth here. But experts agree that China can't continue her unprecedented boom forever. And when things start to slow down, Australia will suffer the consequences. Chinese leaders have said for 10 years it's unsustainable. I mean, it is unsustainable. I mean, no society has ever pumped out the amount of growth that China has ever. It's already broken, you know, records on the scale that it has. The only similarity is like South Korea and Taiwan that kind of produced high levels of growth for smaller economies for 30, 40 years. But China is at the limits of what it can achieve, and it needs to you know, have a big transition to a different kind of economic model, um, where it's more about services and more about you know, the kind of uh, um, economic models that you'd say developed countries have. And Australia is already kind of integrated into that, so a falling growth rate in China, which is happening now, means a falling growth rate here. I mean, we're more exposed to the Chinese economy now than we've ever been to a single economy since 1952, and that was the UK. Over the last 60 years, Australia has been through a huge transition. Through trade, diplomacy and migration, Australia has forged friendly relationships with modern regional powers and in doing so, changed the social fabric of our own population. You know, that's a massive kind of journey. That is a journey from a country which you had strong colonial and cultural and, I mean, everything sort of was linked, whereas now, the biggest material backer of Australia 
is a country where many of the cultural and um, linguistic and other links are, are complicated. So, so for me, the response there is to really know that your ethnic Chinese in Australia and your students from China and Australia and your Australians who are deeply linked into China are the big, big asset and to really make them much more a part of, you know, participating in not just business and not just academic life, because I think that's happening well, but in the political life between, you know, Australia and China, but also itself. I mean, one day, I'm sure, probably pretty soon, there will be an ethnically Chinese premier, maybe even ethnically Chinese prime minister, and I think that's incredibly important to embrace that vision of Australia as not just Asian in mouth, but Asian in appearance. So our domestic politics um, has to reflect the money too, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has to affect a, a kind of cultural comfort with being truly a, an Asian country. Do you think the free trade agreement just signed will help, help that? I think it creates a sort of common conceptual framework and a common conceptual language that makes people think these questions. I mean, you know... Uh, Businesses here have probably been complacent about how to engage with China and having the questions posed about what if you really do have to engage with this market, what do you do, is probably good. But a free trade agreement isn't a panacea. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's just a framework. I mean, it's really just a framework. Uh, it's not going to help anyone who isn't actually deeply committed to trying to succeed in China. All it means is that they have no excuse if they have the right attributes for not going there. China has a bright future ahead of it. And although many Western leaders believe China's continued prosperity rests on a transition to democracy, Kerry Brown thinks its current political direction will provide a strong and stable system that is in the best interest of everyone. Although it's antagonising sometimes to say to audiences here and to people in Australia, the China that the current leadership in Beijing are trying to drive for, urbanised, middle class, well-educated, stakeholders in the international community, on the whole is a good outcome. Whether we like the political model or not, we have to strip the emotion away and think, okay, that China is way better than the failing China which will impact on our growth very, very badly. Um, that China is probably better than a loosely democratic China like Russia that has been pretty scary. I guess we have to think very tactically about, OK, we might not have a cuddly democracy in 10 years, but we do probably have a China coming that will be more liberal, more free, more plural, more able to engage, more open, and that gives us something to play for. Um, but I think we probably need to be, certainly America needs to be less zealous on its desire for China to have a political model like its own. I think for Australia, probably we need to be less zealous about a China that's going to give us loads of money and like make us all very, very rich, but a China that we probably haven't emotionally really come to terms with. So for us, it's probably more of an emotional journey. For Europe, God only knows what the journey is going to be like, but it'll be a complicated one. Yeah.